December of 2016 at Knott's Berry Farm in California, a ride became stuck at about 125 feet up in the air. Um, that's like being on top of a 10-story building, right? There were 21 people on the ride, including seven children, and they were stuck up there for seven hours. Uh, firefighters first tried to reach the stranded passengers by using a massive ladder, but found out it was too short. So the fire crews really had no choice. The only way, the only way they could get everyone down was to lower each passenger from 125 feet up in the air, one person at a time, harnessed together with a firefighter, and then going down on this single rope. Sound like fun? Yeah, whole new adventure to the theme park there. Well, Fire Captain Larry Kurtz told these 21 people, it sounds scary, but we have very, very strong ropes that have 9,000 pounds of breaking strength on them. And uh, one of the children was a, a seven-year-old boy named Luke. He was old enough to feel terror as he looked at the ground 10 stories below. Now, the firefighter looked Luke in the eyes and said with a steadying voice, trust me, Luke, I won't let you go. Your life is very precious to me, and I'll have you down before you know it. Well, I can imagine Luke listening to those words and then peering down over the edge and deciding if he was going to trust that firefighter. You know, basically, he had to decide what was more scary, being stuck in the dark, 10 stories in the air, or getting harnessed to the rope and stepping off with that firefighter into space, right? Luke had to decide if he trusted that firefighter. And more than anything, trusting him meant believing not just his words, but believing that his life mattered to that firefighter, that the firefighter cared for him. Well, we're devoting this season called Lent to growing as those who freely receive from God. You know, just as, as spring is a season of, of turning from cold and darkness toward the uh, warmth and the light of springtime, so Lent is traditionally a season of turning from the darkness to the light and warmth of God's love. As we receive more of God's love, then more of his life emerges in us. The problem, though, is we're not naturally all that good at receiving for a variety of reasons. So today I'm going to talk about one of our major blocks to receiving and what it takes to move past it. You ready? Let's pray. Let me just take a moment. We just quiet our hearts, welcome you, open ourselves to you and what you want to do here in us this morning. So I ask you to come, Holy Spirit, and, and speak to us, speak to our minds, speak to our hearts, draw us into your life. Um, we just offer ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to read to you from John chapter 6, verses 16 to 21. <clears throat> When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. 
Darkness had already set in, but Jesus had not yet come to them. A high wind arose, and the sea began to churn. After they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. He was coming near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. And then they were willing to take him on board, and at once the boat was at the shore where they were heading. So this story immediately follows the feeding of the 5,000 that Jason Upton spoke about last Sunday when he was here. The same story is, is told in Matthew's gospel also, and there it explains that Jesus is the one who told the disciples to get into the boat and head for the other side of the Sea of Galilee while he went up on the mountainside alone to pray. This whole account has some vivid imagery, and it can really help to try and picture it in your mind. The Sea of Galilee is about 13 miles long and uh, about 8 miles wide. So if the disciples had rowed for 3 or 4 miles, they were right out in the middle of that lake. And it was dark. John loves to write about the light and the darkness. And in his writings, the darkness is never a good thing. Then it says a high wind arose. The, the Greek word for high in that verse is a form of mega. It was a big, giant, mighty wind. The Sea of Galilee is notorious for those winds. Something about the mountains surrounding it and, and the temperature differences that creates causes violent winds to arise seemingly out of nowhere. So the sea began to churn. One of my Bibles translates that as the sea was agitated. I like that version of it. The sea was agitated. I've mentioned before that in the ancient world, the sea was often viewed as a metaphor for the violent, destructive, chaotic power of evil. It was, a, a, it was unpredictable. It was menacing. It was a, a picture of Satan and his work. And that night, the sea was agitated. There were 12 men packed into a 25 or 30-foot wooden fishing boat. Now, these guys had to be emotionally wiped out. Remember, John the Baptist, if this is if you read, you know, the chapters leading up to this, John the Baptist, who some of them had been disciples of and, and, and probably all of them knew and loved, had just been executed a couple of days earlier. Jesus and the disciples had then tried to get away, to be alone, to grieve for a while, but thousands of people had followed them and found them. So they instead spent the whole day with Jesus as he taught the crowd, and then they witnessed and actually participated in that incredible miracle we call the feeding of the 5,000, which as Jason pointed out, it was 5,000 men. It was probably 20,000 plus people there. The disciples were the ones who were passing out the bread, the fish. You know, it was multiplying in their hands. So as exhilarating as that must have been, by the end of all, they had to have been exhausted. And then Jesus sends them out across the lake on their own, and now they're rowing for their lives. You know, it's after midnight. It's pitch black out. 
the wind's howling, the waves are crashing over the side of the boat. They're probably all remembering stories from childhood about the demons of the deep. Uh, and they're physically and emotionally wasted. And then they see someone walking on the water toward them. And John writes, they were afraid. You think? I'm pretty sure we've all been there, right, in situations like that. You know, maybe you're, you're right there now. Life is such a mix of highs and lows. It, it really can feel like you're in a boat, in a storm much of the time. Careers and school and parents and kids and money and relationships, church, politics, healthcare, the environment, crime, terrorists, everything else. Life can be physically demanding and mentally and emotionally draining. And then there's all the internal stuff going on. Our hopes and our dreams, our fears, our disappointments, our wounds from the past, all the ways we are hurt by those we love, our seemingly endless struggle with things like anger or lust or greed or selfishness or cynicism, you know, with just trying to be kinder, more loving people. It's not all that different from the howling wind and the agitated sea. The disciples saw Jesus walking on the churning sea, and they were afraid. It was dark. It was chaotic. They didn't know for sure if it was Jesus. And even if it was Jesus, walking on the sea was not normal, right? They, this, this seemed like kind of a scary Jesus. What was he going to do to them? Right? You know, what was he going to think of them? Grown men filled with fear and doubt at that point, despite the incredible miracle they had witnessed just a few hours earlier. They were afraid. In his book, Surrender to Love, David Benner writes about how so many of us think of God as someone to be feared. Despite what we say about believing in a God of grace, so often we suspect that the difficulties in our lives are God's way of punishing us for all of the ways we don't measure up. And we're profoundly aware of all the ways we don't measure up, right? Uh, we know all about the howling winds and the churning seas inside our own soul. All those things of which we are ashamed. We can't imagine that it could really be Jesus coming to us right in the midst of what's worst about us walking on the churning seas of everything we would much rather keep hidden from him. And if it is Jesus, who knows what he's going to do? This Jesus walking on the water is clearly not a God you can control. So all too often in our fear, we just keep on rowing. You know, keep on busily working at life. Keep on trying really hard to fix ourselves and our world rather than stopping and trusting Jesus and bearing our souls and opening ourselves to receiving the unpredictable, life-changing presence of God. John tells another story about Jesus in chapter 4 of his gospel that I, I never would have connected uh, with the one about Jesus walking on the water before writing this sermon. It's a story of Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman at the well. 
one of the things I like to do for fun is read fiction. And, and the most common type of fiction I read uh, are mystery novels or suspense novels. Those kind of things are fun. That's what I do for fun. And I, I love finding an author who writes well and has lots of good books. But the downside of that is almost every author has a template they use for writing their books. So usually by the third or fourth one, you realize, oh, this is really the same story in each book, right? It's just the characters and the circumstances that are changed a little bit. It's the same template in each story. Well, one place you find a template like that in the Bible is in the stories about women at wells. They're all romances. The template of the story is like this. A young Jewish man goes on a journey to a foreign land in order to find a suitable wife. Once in that land, he stops at a well, which back then was the local meeting place, kind of like a singles bar, right? That's what it was. At the well, he meets a beautiful young woman who's a virgin who provides him and maybe his flock, if he has one with him, with water. And then something unusual happens. For example, the woman may need help fighting off the local bullies, or the man and the woman discover that they have this long-lost family connection. So they engage in conversation, and then the woman runs off to tell everyone about the young man she has just met. Love and marriage, of course, follow. That's the template. Think about it. That's what happened to Isaac and Rebekah and to Jacob and Rachel in the book of Genesis. It happened again with Moses and Zipporah in the book of Exodus. For the early Israelites who didn't have Netflix or Amazon Prime, sitting around and telling the stories passed down from generations wasn't just Bible study. It was entertainment, too. You know, just like people today, a lot of them liked a good romance. They enjoyed that kind of story. And if they heard a story about this young guy stopping at a well and meeting a woman, they knew what was coming. So they'd settle in for a good romantic tale. Well, John tells us that Jesus went on a journey into a foreign land called Samaria. And there he stopped at a well. That would have caught the attention of any Jewish reader. And just to make sure, in case they didn't get the point, John points out that it was Jacob's well. He's implying, remember what happened to Jacob at the well, right? And just like what happened to Jacob, Jesus meets a woman at the well. But at this point, the story diverges from the template a bit because this woman is on her sixth husband already. Unless they were really short marriages, She's not young anymore. She's certainly not a virgin. She may no longer be such a beauty. No doubt this woman is carrying a lot of hurt and baggage. She probably doesn't have much self-respect or much esteem in her village. I mean, maybe she was an immoral woman, but it's just as possible that she was the victim of serial abuse from her husbands who divorced her. We don't know her whole story. But there's little doubt that at this point, she is a broken and vulnerable person. Her life has been storm-tossed. Her soul is desolate, filled with the howling wind and the agitated sea. 
And Jesus comes to her because she is the one whom he loves. Jesus is the bridegroom searching for his bride, and she is the one he's been searching for. The radical message of the gospel is that Jesus loves the damaged and the brokenhearted. He cares for the unbeautiful of the world, the abused, the excluded, and the rejected. He sees our fears. He sees our doubts. He sees our insecurities. He sees our sin, and he says, you are the one that I love. You are the one that I have been searching for. It's interesting that this woman was on her sixth husband. In John's gospel, numbers can be symbolic, and six represents something that is incomplete, something unfinished, something short of perfection because it is one less than seven. Seven is the number that represents fullness and completion or perfection. Jesus is metaphorically her seventh husband. Jesus is the one who makes her whole. Her life is changed that day. And like all the other women in those well stories, she goes and tells everyone about this man she has met. Can I just point out that that's what sharing the good news of Jesus is all about? You know, it's not about trying to talk someone into believing a doctrine, right? It's telling them your story. It's telling them the good news about how Jesus loves you even though he knows what you're like and that he loves them just as much. Amen? But back to my point for today. I think that the story of Jesus walking on the water and the story of the woman at the well both get at the same issue in us. They both get at our fears. Our fear for our own safety and security in this storm-tossed world. Our fear about how short we fall of the life we know we should be living. A fear of being uh, completely vulnerable and transparent with God when we know what we're like on the inside. Our fear about who God really is and what he might do with us if we totally, unreservedly surrender our lives to him. Our fear of dropping our masks, giving up control, and trusting Jesus. Our fears are one of the major blocks to us receiving from Jesus what he longs to give us. Our fears make us want to keep Jesus at a safe distance. They keep us from being vulnerable and trusting him. But as the woman at the well discovered, all Jesus ever wanted was to love her. There was never anything to fear. And the same is true for us. The disciples in the boat were afraid. But Jesus said to them, it is I, or more literally, I am, is what he actually said. Don't be afraid. Stop being afraid, is what he said. And then they were willing to take Jesus on board. So my question for you today is, will you take Jesus on board? Will you take him on board? Taking Jesus on board is something we all have to do as followers of Jesus over and over and over again 
at deeper and deeper levels in our lives. Taking Jesus on board is choosing to trust him in spite of our fear. And not taking him on, not, not because taking Jesus on board guarantees some particular outcome in our lives that we want to see, but simply trusting him, trusting what he wants to do because we know that he loves us. Taking Jesus on board is about surrender. It's about giving up control. It means we don't get to be the one who decides how our life should go, which direction we're going to take, where we're going to end up, what's okay or not okay to do with our life. But then again, thinking we have control about any of those things is just an illusion anyways, right? So why not? (laughs) Taking Jesus on board opens us up to receiving all that Jesus has for us. It's what the woman at the well did, and her life was forever changed. It's what the disciples in the boat did, and it says at once the boat was at the shore where they were headed. I can't guarantee instantaneous results, but I can promise that the more you allow Jesus to come on board in your life, even into the the storm-tossed, howling wind, churning seas part of your life, the more you will experience the love and the joy and the peace and the hope and all the other good things of God. And the thing is, Jesus is already there, right? He's already there walking on the storm-tossed waters anyway. He knows everything that's going on with you. He's there like a bridegroom offering you his love. Taking him on board is simply saying yes. So will you take Jesus on board? Here's what I've been practicing to try and do that, because I think you need, we need something practical to do that. Uh, and this is not new. Uh, this is something we've talked about multiple times before. But it's not the talking about it that makes any difference in our lives. It's the doing of it, right? So I'm talking about it again. Uh, I have found that practicing silence is a great way to take Jesus on board in my life. So most days, I am trying to spend 20 minutes simply sitting in silence before God. Now, some days that feels great. Other days, it feels like a constant battle with my thoughts or a complete waste of time. But here's the thing. Doing it day after day, no matter how it feels, positions me to receive from God. And that is what we need more than anything. When I sit in silence, I'm not trying to do anything. I'm not trying to fix anything. I'm not trying to make anything happen. I'm just saying through my silence, I trust you, Lord. I surrender to your love. In practicing silence day after day, I am inviting Jesus to come on board in my life. Most people who teach this recommend that you have a silent prayer that you keep in mind to help focus your thoughts as you do it. So I pray, come Holy Spirit, over and over as I'm sitting there in my silence. Just pray that silently in my head to focus my thoughts. And then as other thoughts intrude on my silence, and they always do, 
or, or some of the howling winds and churning seas of my own life or of those I love come to mind, I don't fight those thoughts. You know, I don't try to stop thinking about them because how do you suppose that would work? Not so well. I just lift those thoughts up to Jesus and hold them before him. I offer them to him. I've come to see silence as a crucial part of our life with Jesus. It's a way of practicing trust, a way of practicing surrender. Now, if you've never done it, don't start with 20 minutes of silence, right? Start with two minutes. Go with that for a while, like a month, and then let it grow gradually to five minutes, and then let it grow from there. But give it a try. Another way you can take Jesus on board is by creating some space in your life through fasting. Adam talked about this a couple of weeks ago. You know, when we fast, we're giving up something that we need or we enjoy for a time in order to create space to open ourselves to receiving more from God. Well, as part of Lent this year, we thought it would be good to have one day when all of us who are part of the vineyard could fast together. So we're inviting you to fast in some way this Friday. We thought we'd link it to our evening of prayer and worship. Um, so you could, you can do it however you want to do it. You could fast all day, not eat all day. You could skip one meal. You know, whatever it is you want to do, I just encourage you to join in this fast in some way that is significant for you as a way of taking Jesus on board, a way of, of making ourselves available to receiving from the Holy Spirit. Sound good? Back on that ride, 125 feet in the air at Knott's Berry Farm, seven-year-old Luke listened to the firefighter. He thought about the very, very strong rope, and he decided to trust that firefighter, to trust that he cared for him in spite of his fears. You could say, in a sense, that Luke was willing to take that firefighter on board. So the firefighter hitched him up. Together they stepped off the ride, and down they went. Slowly, yeah. It took till 10 that night, but everyone made it down safely. 